0: I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 as we continue our study of Daniel. We're moving from the first half of Daniel. It, it divides equally into six chapters. first six or narratives to tell us about the life of Daniel and his friends. This latter uh, part of Daniel is what we refer to as apocalyptic literature. It's a, it's a genre of literature all its own. Uh, and... Coupled with the book of Revelation, uh, it is the two sections of Scripture that we refer to as apocalyptic literature. Uh, po- apocalypse means a, a revelation. So uh, it's, a, it's a revelation of something that God wants us to see. And it's different than prophecy. Prophets received uh, messages from God, uh, verbal messages that they received directly from God, and they proclaimed these messages. To people, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, and, and the minor prophets that you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, etc. These men received messages from God. Apocalyptic literature is more uh, along the lines of visions. People re- see things, see visions, and have dreams. And that's what's happening with Daniel and also in Revelation, what happens with John. He sees things, he sees these visions. And they're not as straightforward as prophecy is. You know, when when God wanted to speak to the people of Israel or to the church, he he spoke through people. He gave them a message and and, and oftentimes a very blunt and direct message. But when we come to apocalyptic literature, we'll see that it's very symbolic. And a lot of ink has been spilled and and arguments uh, have, have occurred over the meanings of of much of what is written in this, these latter book, uh, chapters of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Uh, and hopefully we can sort through some of that and uh, have a, a clear view of what the message is. That's my goal for us as we study these latter chapters of Daniel. Uh, if you're looking forward to lots of predictions about what's going to happen in the near future, I'm going to probably disappoint you. But this is God's word, and I think we can get to the heart of what God is trying to speak to us, to show us, literally, uh, as we read uh, these, these next chapters over the next few weeks. So let's, uh, without further ado, turn our attention to Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, "'As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of his kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings.'" He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. In uh, in 1882, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche made his celebrated and dire pronouncement, God is dead. And he was speaking for many intellectuals of the day, who believed that the progress of science would cause a decline in religious faith, Christianity in particular being the principal loser. And in the year, uh, as the year 1900 approached, many leading secular thinkers like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells argued that the dawning of the 20th century would mark the close of history's religious phase. Well, of course, the 20th century came, uh, and during that uh, time in history, 1957 specifically, Julian Huxley said this, operationally, God is beginning to resemble not a ruler but the last fading smile of a cosmic Cheshire cat. Today we have the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, who I'm sure now sees things as they really are, uh, They're the new atheists, and and they're trying to undermine Christianity. Well, people have been predicting the demise of the church and Christianity since its very inception. But on the other hand, to hear some Christians speak, you would think that things were never better. We're always hearing of announcements of revivals uh, in America and in, in the United Kingdom. Of course, the church is growing Gates of hell cannot prevail against it, and we see it growing in other parts of the world, but as I lived in the UK, I was always struck by the number of announcements of great revivals breaking out all over Britain. I don't know where these people ended up, because I never saw them anywhere. Well, as we come to this vision that we have here in chapter 7, we find balance, balance, This this chapter will help us find balance between those two extremes. It keeps us from buying into the predictions of the naysayers and the prophets of doom, but it also guards us against false triumphalism. What we have here in this this vision, the overarching concern of this vision, is to focus our attention on the age-long conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And we also see who wins in the end. Now, to sum up what uh, Daniel has seen here, he's got these four beasts rising up out of the sea, and the sea there is uh, all in commotion. The wind is blowing, and and you know, you, you know, we we, don't, we all know what that looks like when a hurricane comes and the winds and the sea is all in a rage. It's a it's a picture of chaos that we have here. And then these four beasts rise up out of the chaos, and then. The fourth beast has these ten horns and and one of these horns rises up and oppresses the people of God. And then the Ancient of Days brings judgment and destruction of the beast and the horn. The Son of Man is given everlasting dominion and glory and an indestructible kingdom. And the saints, who are his followers, are are joint heirs with him and inheriting that kingdom. And they live forever and ever. Amen. Now, as I said before, you might be disappointed if you're looking for me to tell you the identity of these four beasts. I, I have no clue who these beasts are. If you read the commentaries, you know, they all have different ideas about who these different kingdoms are. Uh, it does tell us here in the passage that these are kings and kingdoms that are, will arise in the earth and, and they will uh, be oppressing the people of God. Whether this is metaphorical or symbolic, or or how metaphorical and symbolic it is, it's it's hard to tell. Some people talk about the kingdoms like Persia and, and, and Greece and Rome. But maybe it's even kingdoms that haven't come yet. I don't think it's important that we look at this passage and try to figure out every detail and what exactly it is talking about. We will soon be frustrated if we try to do that. But all we have to do is go back to the first audience, the people who first received this book of Daniel and and know that they would not have seen hardly uh, any of this happening in their lifetime. But yet they're given this book to to be encouraged in their faith, in, in the place where they were, spiritually and physically. They wouldn't have known the identity of these beasts, but it was written down to minister to them and to us as well. So we don't have to figure it all out to have this passage really encourage us in our faith today. As we focus our attention on this conflict, we find Daniel's vision serving two things for us, as it did for Daniel and as it did for his original audience and the audiences that have existed between his original audience and us today here in 2013. We have, first of all, a wake-up call, and then we also have a victory announcement. Now first, we see uh, uh, this is a, a wake-up call. And there's always going to be conflict for the Christian. That's what we find here in this passage because this, this vision is talking to us about history to the very end of time. And you'll notice in this passage that there's, the conflict keeps on going throughout the whole vision and does not end until the end of time, until judgment day. So it's a wake-up call. Now many of you have probably experienced having a wake-up call, uh, a wake-up call at a hotel or a motel where you were staying. Uh, a wake-up call is a service provided by the front desk. If you are traveling, you probably, uh, you know, are not in the practice of taking your alarm clock with you, and, and back in the old days, not so very long ago, they they didn't put alarm clocks in every room like they they did now. And so you would call the front desk and tell them, you know, Give me a wake-up call for 6 a.m. And they would call you at 6 and you know, keep ringing and ringing until you answer the phone. So it, it was an alarm clock, basically. Now, we use the term metaphorically now. We say something is a wake-up call, something, something that gets our attention, something, uh, something of which we were previously unaware. Uh, it, it comes crashing into our, our life and our attention, and we have to pay attention to it. Well, I undoubtedly have heard people say that the events of 9-11 were a wake-up call to the United States. We, were, we became very, very much aware that there are people in the world who don't like us very much and would like to see us destroyed. And those events really crystallized that feeling for us. It was a wake-up call. Well, Daniel uh, here is getting a wake-up call for himself and for his readers. You'll notice that verse 1 says this, that in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. We've already encountered him and, and the book of Daniel is not chronological. So we're jumping back to the events uh, in previous chapters where Belshazzar, who was the last ruler of Babylon, uh, he, had, he, had, he was the one that had the handwriting on the wall and his kingdom was taken from him that very night and the, the kingdom of Babylon fell under his rule during that during that time. So Daniel... Uh, in, in this last few years of the kingdom of Babylon when Belshazzar is, is acting as regent in Babylon he knows that the, the time is soon to be up the 70 years of exile are coming to an end they're very close and as soon as the Persians come and conquer the Babylonians the, the Jews will be able to go back to their homeland well Daniel has been reading Jeremiah and he knows this is about to happen so uh, he knew he knows the exile's almost over he knew what kind of person belshazzar was that he was blasphemous and uh, he was he was uh, a pagan and he mocked the things of god blaspheming god surely daniel was an- anticipating a turn for the positive for the people of god and just when daniel is anticipating this turn of events this positive turn uh, this, this assistance for the people of God coming down from, from, from the Lord, uh, he gets this important lesson, vision. The conflict that he's been enduring is endemic to world history until the end. That's what the vision is telling him. Rather than decrease, it's going to be perpetuated until it reaches its zenith in the ferocious blasphemies of this little horn that he sees in his vision. He gets this wake-up call that says, yes, the battle may be soon taking a turn in favor of the people of God, but the conflict is far from finished. In fact, this conflict will rage on until Judgment Day. Well, you know, you've probably watched war movies before, and invariably in these war movies you'll have some some green soldier just on the field and and he's just wandering along the battlefield until somebody snatches him and says, "Man, get your head down or you're going to get it blown off." They're they're walking around like they're like they're just in, in, at the mall shopping or something. They're they're completely unaware of the of the danger that they're in. We may look around and, and see many enemies to the church and to Christianity. Some of these enemies are regimes such as you see in Egypt or Syria in our day who are persecuting actively Christians. There are physical enemies to the church of Christ, but behind each and every enemy is a spiritual enemy. These struggles of flesh and blood are merely a subset to a greater spiritual cosmic battle that is raging on and on and on. And if we're not aware, if we're not aware that this battle is going on we might just get our head blown off spiritually speaking Ephesians 6 we read it earlier we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers authorities cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places are you aware that there's a battle going on the battle is for your soul every moment of every day You have an enemy that is trying to, as I said before, blow your head off spiritually. You have an enemy that wants to devour your soul constantly on the prowl, as the New Testament tells us. There are no Switzerlands in this conflict. No one is neutral. Everybody is included in this spiritual warfare that's going on. And this vision is telling us that. It's it's saying, wake up to the realities that you may not be able to see. We need to have a wartime mentality. Look what Daniel says at the end. Here's the end of the matter, verse 28. Uh, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. In other words, he just went white. But I kept the matter in my heart. You know, these things are very daunting and troubling. And we need to be aware of that these things are going on. We need to have a wartime mentality. A wartime mentality means an awareness of the conflict that's going on around us. It's going to mean sacrifice. You think about the people in World War II, uh, you know, having lived in England and, and gone to many of the museums that record the Battle of Britain and, and all that those people suffered, how they were always... Uh, making sacrifices. And, and, and many of you, or maybe not many of you, but some of you who lived through that here in the United States, you also made the sacrifices. You know, you had, you had uh, only a certain amount of sugar and butter and, and certain things. And you made sacrifices for the cause. Everybody pitched in and had that wartime mentality. It means sacrifice. It means vigilance for the cause. I told you before I love watching Antiques Roadshow and I was watching it the other day, and they, this person brought some posters in that were from World War II in England, and uh, they were all cartoon posters, and they were just scenes from everyday life, but Hitler was in all the scenes. And sometimes, like if he was on the bus, he was hiding on the luggage, on the luggage rack, or you know, he was kind of tucked away here or there. And the point of this was, you know, be careful. Be careful what you say, and who you say it to because there are spies all around and we need to be aware. Be aware. Loose lips sink ships was the old saying. And so these messages, these people were being reminded to have that wartime mentality, to be on the alert. So it meant vigilance. It also means suffering. If you look at verse 23, it tells us that this fourth beast is going to devour the whole earth and trample it down. And then in verse 25, the little horn is going to speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. These are daunting things. We need to be aware that they're going on and not be discouraged if things get worse for the church. These things have been predicted. It's all part of the plan. Well, like Daniel saw we also must see the enemy and the conflict around us. But then, like Daniel, our eyes should move to the throne of God. Daniel first sees these beasts, and then his attention is taken to the very throne of God and to the Son of Man. And there we see the victory announcement. There will always be victory for the Christian in the midst of this conflict. And there's two things I just want to point out here, quite simply. First of all, never lose sight of God on the throne. Our gaze must always penetrate beyond the terrible events of history to the throne of God. Only in the assurance that He reigns will we be able to live triumphantly when we cannot trace or understand His plan of victory. You know, sometimes it looks very dark. I'm sure for the people who are actively being persecuted, in our day and time. It looks very dark and grim for the church and for the people of God there. They need to put their gaze on the throne. God is in control of these things and He must, as we sang earlier, He must win the battle. So as we worry and fear and think of the way things are going, we need to be reminded of verse 26, that the court shall sit in judgment and His dominion shall be taken away. This is the the one who opposes God. They will be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. As we look at the throne of God, not only does it keep us from worry and fear, but it also keeps us from hopelessness in the midst of the battle. We don't look to our own government, though, though we're tempted to, to save us and keep us. We don't look to any world power. We need to look beyond that because this is a spiritual conflict in which we're engaged. Our aim is not to build the kingdoms of this world, but to share in the triumph of Christ and his kingdom. He's already established his everlasting kingdom among men, and he's building that. He's strengthening it. He reigns now, he's building his church in all kingdoms that have, are, or will ever stand against it will be judged in the courtroom of God and are destined to fail. Even the little horn cannot overthrow his rule. So we have this wonderful hope. So never lose sight that God is on the throne in the midst of the struggle, no matter what you're suffering, no matter uh, how your life as a Christian is more difficult because you are a Christian. Remember, God is on the throne. And never lose sight, secondly, of the Son of Man. He has this wonderful vision of the Son of Man. And of course, this is Jesus. And Jesus uses this title for himself. In, in the book of Matthew, for example, he uses it 94 times in reference to himself. But Jesus liked this designation. And he's talking about Daniel 7 when he uses it. He's referring to himself as that one. I've given you some texts just to look at later. I'll read, uh, I'll read one of them. Mark 14:61. This is at the trial of Christ. The high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's blowing the doors off that priest. He said, Yes, I'm the Messiah, and I'm not only the Messiah, but I'm, I'm the Son of Man that Daniel 7 has been talking about. Earlier in that passage in John, uh, they, they, he says that and they pick up rocks. They want to they stone him. They, they, they cannot believe that he's claiming this title, the Son of Man. But this is Jesus that we're talking about. He is the divine victor. He's accomplished all the victory for us. All that man cannot accomplish for himself, Christ has accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He's conquered all his and our enemies in his life, death, and resurrection. He's, he's conquered sin by, by paying for it on the cross, becoming sin for us in our place. He paid the price for sin, and now sin no longer has dominion over those who have put their faith in Christ. He's conquered all the hosts of hell. He has triumphed over them because he has saved his people. And he has conquered death, the final one, by rising from the, from the grave. And, and He lives forever. And because He lives, we will too. We must share in His victory. Mark 10, 45 tells us, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And that's exactly what the Son of Man did. This, this great one who has all dominion and glory and power and an everlasting kingdom, He has come and He's served us. It was Jesus Christ. And He's coming back. Revelation 19, you have it on, that, on the outline that I gave you. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. hoping for the death of of the church. They may rail against the church in all their fury, but they will not conquer because we have the victory through the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's a great comfort to us as we fight the daily battle with sin, as we struggle to live the Christian life where we are in the mundane battlefield of life. That occurs, you know, we read Ephesians 6, but it, I think it, it uh, on purpose, follows Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 tells us how to live as husbands and wives and, and how to parent children and how, how to uh, the relationship between servants and masters, people who work for one another. This is where the battle rages in everyday life. And we have the victory through Christ. And one day he's going to return And put down all those enemies that oppose him and his church and his people. Will you rejoice in that day when he comes with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him? Is his victory over sin and hell and death your victory? Are you trusting in him? Are you on his side? Are you a soldier of the cross? Is the King of kings your king? Is the Lord of lords your Lord? It's so easy to make that happen. Any, uh, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's free. You don't have to have money or good deeds or anything. Or will you be joining with the tribes of the earth who will wail on account of him? Will you be among those who will be calling to the mountains and the rocks? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? No one can stand who opposes Christ and his kingdom. As Joshua said to the people of Israel, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Stand with Joshua and all the saints in Christ's kingdom. Let's pray together.